Every new year, there's pressure to work out, and it stops people from even starting. But starting is what matters most. So Peloton's made starting easy with up to $600 off Peloton bike purchases and two months free membership. Start moving with the Peloton Bike, Bike Plus, Tread, Row, or Guide, and thousands of classes with instructors ready to support you from day one. Shop Peloton's New Year offers at onepeloton.com slash deals. All access membership separate. Terms apply. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Secret Library Podcast. I'm your host, Caroline Donahue, and ever since I was little, I've been obsessed with books. So I started this show to interview authors and those behind the book so that we can learn not just why they mean something to us, but where they come from. Welcome to episode two. Today, we're talking to Esme Weijin Wang about her recently released book, The Border of Paradise. Hello, I am really excited to have as my guest. Esme Raisin Wang, and I just learned how to pronounce her middle name, which is a good thing. It's a beautiful name. <laughs> and um, apparently people don't always get that right, so I'm invested. And she is an award-winning author and advocate. She provides resources at her website, Esme Wang, which we will... Isn't it your full name now? Is it Esme Raisin Wang, or is it just Esme Wang? Uh, my website is just EsmeWang.com. It, it, I think it's less okay. complicated for people that way. <laughs> so, yeah. Fair, fair enough. Um, but she provides these amazing resources that assist with aspiring and working creatives on developing resilience on the path to be, uh, building a creative legacy. And she originates from her, her work originates from her own experiences as a writer. She learned the importance of adapting to difficult times from living with schizoaffective disorder and late-stage Lyme disease. She studied creative writing and psychology at Yale and Stanford and received her MFA from the top-tier creative writing program at the University of Michigan. And her novel, The Border of Paradise, has come out this year. She also wrote the ebook The Light Gets In. And she's been published and seen in Salon, The New Inquiry, The New Yorker Online, and The New York Times. Um, she loves organizational tools, handwritten letters, and her home of San Francisco. Um, you can also get her awesome email, that, her email newsletters, which I love, at esmaywang.com slash e hyphen letter. Um, so welcome, Esme. I'm so happy that you're here. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Yeah, we've been in sort of the same little online community, but it's always so fun to have an actual conversation. So I was looking forward to this for that reason as well, not only having read your book. Um, so before we even get into the book, one thing that I'm fascinated by, because it seems like in the world of writing, people kind of identify as nonfiction writers or fiction writers, and you have bridged the gap by publishing the novel, and so you've written both. And I'm curious, like, how has it been to write both of those things, and how are they different? Mm, it's very interesting. It's an interesting question, and one that I actually get pretty frequently. 
I find it interesting because as someone who comes from kind of that MFA world, it, the divide is more frequently known as between the prose and the poetry communities. There's not oh, so much. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, outside of the Iowa program, there aren't as many MFA nonfiction programs. And so when I was at the University of Michigan, I was known as a fiction writer. I only took one class that had anything to do with creative nonfiction. I only wrote a few essays while I was there. I spent most of my time writing short stories, which actually aren't a natural form for me. I don't feel particularly comfortable writing short stories, but that's the, the kind of common structure for MFA programs um, with fiction. I started writing my novel there, but it wasn't until after I graduated that I became more known for writing essays, and that kind of happened almost by accident. I started writing essays as a kind of like form of expression and as something that I could work on and get out more quickly than the novel, which took about five years to write. So while this thing was kind of brewing in the background and I was working on that daily um, for many years, I worked on nonfiction. And so because this novel was the only work of fiction that I was working on, everybody started to get to know me as an essayist, and I was getting essays published. And so for the past couple of years in particular, I've been known publicly as an essayist. So it's been this year that the novel has finally come out and people have realized, like, oh, and she actually had this thing that she was working on this whole time. And so um, now I feel like people are, are recognizing me as a novelist. But, yes, um, it's very odd to me that I'm thought of as an essayist uh, or any kind of nonfiction writer, really, because I definitely did not spend as much time studying it in great detail as I did fiction writing. You've been a secret novelist all along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I tore off, tore off my superhero costume and beat down inside. Yeah. I was just a novelist. <laughs> I love it. Do you feel that the um, that being known as an essayist, that putting all of your essays and publishing them, did that help you at all in terms of getting the novel published, or were they completely separate? Oh, they were completely separate. Um, it's interesting because definitely, uh, like going the traditional publishing route, it's more common to publish a bunch of short stories and then to have an agent, find an agent by having that agent discover you through some literary journal where they find your short story and then they ask you if you have an agent then you get an agent that way and then hopefully um, once you have a novel written, you'll be able to um, lure an editor into acquiring your novel in part because you have a lot of short stories published already. But that's not really the case in terms of the essays. I don't think any of the editors who took a look at The Border of Paradise particularly cared that I had essays published. I mean, I don't think they disliked it, but it had no bearing on the quality of my novel or what they thought about my viability as a writer. So how did you find your, how did you end up finding your editor and 
your publisher and all of that if it didn't happen the traditional way. I love hearing about different routes. <laughs> um, so the way I found my agent actually was fairly traditional or uh, I don't I don't really know what traditional is considered to be, but um so unlike Iowa, Michigan only really starts to have its students think about publishing and publication at the very, very end of their time at Michigan. Right now it's a three-year program. It was a two-year program when I was there. But so at the end of the last semester, you would get to meet with one agent. And this is very different from um, Iowa where they had agents coming in all the time. And you know, mm. I think agents came in like almost weekly or biweekly. I had... Oh, well. Most of my friends actually went to Iowa, so this is how I know about um, what was happening there. Um, so I met an agent, and she read about 30 pages of my novel in progress, which was The Border of Paradise, and she was interested in it. She emailed me um, from, the runway of the, her, from the runway of her flight after she had oh, read wow. it on the plane, <laughs> yeah, after leaving Amazing. Ann Arbor, yeah, and she was like, I really love this, um, let's stay in touch and let me know when you're done, and she actually kind of courted me for the next few years as I was finishing the book, she would, you know, kind of email me or nudge me every couple of months and say, how's the book going, mm. and so by the time I actually finished the book and, and edited it and considered it good enough to start submitting or querying agents um, about, she was definitely uh, at the front of my mind because she had been so um, attentive throughout. And so even though I did get some um, attention and uh, interest from other agents, she ended up becoming my agent. Her name is Amy Williams from the um, oh. now. From now it is the Williams Company, but she used to be at um, McCormick and Williams. Um, so she's my agent. Uh, interestingly, the story of how I found the editor and the house that I ultimately was published at, which was Unnamed Press, was a much more um, bumpy, <laughs> like it was a much <laughs> bumpier road than the process of getting an agent. So we ended up and when I say we, I mean Amy and me. We ended up sending the book out to over 40 editors, and it was rejected over 40 times. Wow. And yeah, um, it was very hard. It, it This took place over two years or so. It just kept going out, and then it would come back, and there were some, you know, quote-unquote close calls, places where... They say like, oh, this this looks really good. We're really excited about it. We need to like show it to market the marketing department, and we need to talk about what how we market this. Um, but then it would come back, and they'd say we weren't able to come up with a good way to sell this. Um, and it was very disheartening, especially after working on something for so long, and then kind of feeling oh, like. Yeah. yeah, and just feeling like it's your baby in a way, and really having had such hopes for it. So anyway, um, it had gone out many times and at the by the time we had hit, I don't know, about like 40 or 41 rejections, my agent said, you know, I think we should let it rest here. And so we just kind of 
let it go, and I started thinking about what my next book would be, but I really do not want to give up on this book. And I ended up sending it out myself, unagented, to Unnamed Press, which I heard about through an article that a friend of mine wrote in Publishers Weekly. Um, she had profiled them for Publishers Weekly. And so I sent it out, um, unagented, <laughs> and I heard back from them after, I'm not quite sure how long, maybe a couple of weeks, and they said, you know, we're interested in it, we're going to take a look at it and think some more about it, and then they ended up making an offer, and that's when I brought my agent back into the picture, and we, I had her negotiate with them. But yeah, so it was, it was a hard road. Um, it definitely was not the road that most of my friends um, traveled. Most of my friends had what I consider very easy experiences with publication. Um, mm. I had friends who, and I think this also had to do with the friend group that I had been associated with since college. I mean, these are friends who, like, won the O. Henry were in the O. Henry collection when they were, like, 21, and I had, like, a friend oh, who God. sold her book within 48 hours for a quarter million dollars, and it was just, like, I was in a very, like, weird, <laughs> like, I, I definitely thought the process was going to be easier than it was for me. Yeah. It ended up being much more difficult, but, um, yeah, I'm really happy with the fact that it did find a home, and um, it's it wasn't what I thought it would be, and I wasn't expecting to go with a small press, but it's turned out really well. Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful looking book. I think they did a, a great job with that. I want to, I'm curious about, like, how much say did you get in the cover and the design and the way the book was ultimately presented? I think I ended up getting a lot more say in it because it was a small press and I had a, I have a good relationship with my editor, so... He did send me, my editor, Chris Heiser, um, did send me the images of the book covers as they were being designed, and I would respond with, oh, I like this about this one and not so much this about it. Um, and I would give them feedback, uh, or, you know, he'd send, like, four of them, and then we'd talk about which one was best. Uh, there was, uh, I remember... I received an email with something like four or five covers when I was at uh, a friend's wedding, and she is a writer um, as well as mm -hmm. an editor at the New York Times, and so it was a very writerly wedding. <laughs> wedding. Uh, there were a lot of writers as guests, and I remember showing writer Alice Kim and her partner uh, Isaac Fitzgerald, who is uh, the head guy at BuzzFeed Books. Um, I remember showing them the covers on my phone and Isaac giving me feedback on which one he thought was best <laughs> based on his vast experience, having seen hundreds of galleys, maybe thousands of galleys at BuzzFeed. Um, but, yeah, uh, I, I ended up getting quite a lot of uh, – I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't say control, but I – they did care what I thought of the cover. And I actually did end up meeting the cover designer at AWP. Oh, really? Yeah, she's a very lovely person and um, uh, actually founded a food magazine as well. So, yeah, she uh, designed the cover. The piece of art that the cover has on it um, is one that I've been in communication with artists 
about, and I'm, my husband and I are currently saving up to buy the original piece. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> it's a beautiful image. Um, I think it's, it's one of my favorite covers I've seen recently because it just, it has a lot of atmosphere in it, but I think it communicates the atmosphere, at least for me as a reader, the experience of the book. I don't know how it feels to you as the writer of it, but there was this feeling looking at it of sort of hovering between two spaces and, you know, floating and it's a little dreamlike and there was all of that I felt in the book. So it, it really worked for me picking it up. Yeah, I thought it conveyed what the book is about and what it contains um, very well. I think it's great. I couldn't have invented a better one. <laughs> so in terms of the book itself, I want to get into the actual book. So where did how did the idea come to you? Because it's, it's a really interesting and unusual premise, and it, it allows you to get into so many things about the human experience. So it sounds like you started it when you were at Michigan, but I'm just wondering how the idea came to you. So the very kernel of the book, I think, went back quite a ways. I would say maybe even when I was a teenager or maybe in my very early 20s, I just remember friend of mine saying to me, I think the most romantic thing ever would be if two siblings fell in love with one another. And that really stuck with me. And so the first part that I wrote of The Border of Paradise was my thesis at Michigan, and it was the 100 pages that make up the first Williams section. Um, It's that part that starts as, like, my father, my father was at Wellbrook from X year to X year. Um, and in the beginning, I envisioned the entire book as being narrated by William. I thought it was just going to be William's story. I was really interested in the voice, his voice, and the way that he narrates um, but it obviously went in a different direction after that. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, it's, that was one of the things I really liked about it, um, was that you got to see the same situation from different characters' points of view, and that it really changes. And there was a, it changes everything, and it, there was also a certain amount of suspense, because then I would get to the next thing and see who it was and say, oh, what are they going to say? Um, <laughs> Because it's so, everyone is so, it felt like each character was so committed to their own point of view, and there wasn't a lot of, like, well, I wonder how so-and-so feels about it. Like, for whatever reason, they were each so locked into their own space. I mean, and so it was once you jumped to someone else, I was like, oh, man, this is going to be completely different. Um, <laughs> so how did it feel, like, when you, when you realized, oh, I'm going to go to other people's points of view? It was interesting. I think I realized I was going to go to other people's points of view when I realized that I wouldn't be able to sustain William's voice over hundreds of pages. He just has way too much of a bombastic and kind of like it's way too voicey to sustain for so long and and would probably be really intolerable to read like 400 pages of William. Um, But, yeah, so I wrote William first, and then I think I may have written David next. This is not... um, going to mean anything to people who haven't read the book. So the, 
to, to say really quickly, the book has seven points of view, and the book starts with the alternating narratives of David and Daisy. Um, so they're the first generation, and then William and Jillian, who are the next generation, and then uh, Marianne and Marty, who are um, related not by blood, but related um, in terms of story to David. Um, and so uh, I, I wrote David next, and um, that happened because I realized that I had to explain how it was that William and Jillian get into the situation they get into. So without giving too much away about the book, um, William and Jillian are raised in a very unusual way in a very isolated part of Northern California, a town called Polk Valley. And they're, um, they don't have any friends, they don't go to school, they don't know that the books in their house are not the only books that exist in the world. It's a very, very isolated situation. And um, I remember, I think, like, a couple of friends and then also professors said, you're going to have to explain how they end up in this situation. And so I almost worked backwards. I guess I did work backwards at that point. And that's when I started thinking about, well, how did they get to that point? And that's when David and Daisy's stories started coming out in their points of view. Yeah, I... Um I think that was really, yeah, it was fascinating to start, because it starts with David, the father, and then, so you're getting this whole point of view of him, and then you move into, you add Daisy, the mother, and then it goes into, and I was like, oh, we get to learn what's going on with them. Um, and there is, there's a whole world inside of each of these characters. And I think, well, I had two questions, I guess. Well, I have a lot, but two at the moment. Um, do you have a favorite character um, after all of it? <laughs> it's really interesting when, to me when people ask me this question because I actually don't have a favorite character, but it is really interesting to me how strongly people end up feeling about the characters. I just got an email from uh, an acquaintance who just finished reading the book, um, and in it she was so irate about one particular character. Um, and, and what ends up happening to that person. Um, and it's interesting because I know somebody else for whom that character is his favorite character. Um, and, and it, that was also, I think, a little bit of a problem with the editors when we were trying to sell the book is some of them really loved the David and Daisy sections and did not like so much the William and Jillian sections and then other people were much more interested in what happened with William and Jillian and weren't as interested in what was going on with David and Daisy. I guess that's a risk that um, writers take when they have multiple POVs is that, well, you know, maybe the reader will not be interested in one or the other or will be much more interested in one. But personally, I am interested in and love all of the characters. Um, I also find it interesting to see where the gender divide is when I talk to, uh, in particular, men and women about their favorite characters. Um, mm. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, so, no, I don't have a favorite. 
character? Because I think I was, well, one thing I had that I was really interested in is, because for one thing I wrote in the review I wrote of it was that you are just fearless about taboo in this, <laughs> in this book. So I'm like, wow, she's just going to plow right through it. Like, there's just no fear around it, which I thought was really amazing. And the fact that the other thing, in the very limited amount of time I've spent writing myself, I have a really hard time taking my characters into situations that are going to be really horrible for them. And mm-hmm. and you were really brave about it. It's like these characters have tough lives before you meet them and you hear about that and then really amazing out-of-nowhere things happen in the book. Um, and how did you sort of – was it something that just seemed inevitable as you were writing or was it like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to write this? And I'm just curious about how you navigated these intense things that happen to the characters as you're writing. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that. It's something, what you expressed is actually something I've heard a number of times from different people. And my question actually for you or for anybody who has this question is, is the issue that you care about your characters so much that you don't want to have to put them through this terrible thing, or is it that you as the writer are scared or uncomfortable about having to put yourself through the situation because you'll have to write about it, if that makes sense. I think it's, oh, it makes perfect sense. I think it's probably the second, but telling myself that it's the first. (laughs) Yeah. um, It's it's just, I don't know how I'm going to do this, so I'm going to tell myself that I care so much about these people that I couldn't possibly do it to them. But I'm sure that underneath the real thing is, is, oh, my God, how am I going to make this work? Yeah, I mean, there's so many concerns, like, how am I going to make this work? Like, how am I going to make it not melodramatic or overly dramatic? How am I going to make it feel real? How will I make it feel earned? Um, If it's something very triggering, if I, when I write things that are very triggering for myself, I do end up getting physically sick sometimes, and I feel like that's just kind of, something that happens um but yeah I tend to yeah that's not really something that I've dealt with too much as a writer I know that bad things happen in real life and so I feel like I have a responsibility to be able to have bad things happen in the fictional world as well yeah I think that's true I mean I think it's I think that's true, and if you have that experience in your life, then you feel like it's not going to feel real if this doesn't happen to them. If everything's sort of sunshine and roses, then it's not It's not going to be a real book. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not going to be relatable. A story. Well, it's also not going to be a story, you know, like there's no conflict. Right. <laughs> exactly. So how do you deal with that? You get physically sick when triggering things happen? That's because that's another thing I was curious about is, you know, you have significant dealing with health issues. How are you creating your writing schedule? And how are you handling all of that, particularly if there's that added element of, you know, illness being impacted by your writing? 
Yeah, so this is actually something that is fairly new for me to have to deal with. I wrote the entirety of The Border of Paradise before I developed late stage Lyme disease. And so it hasn't been until pretty recently that I've had to kind of figure out, okay, how am I going to write my next novel? It, I've really been itching to write a new novel, and I used to be able to sit at my laptop for up to seven or eight hours and just drink endless amounts of coffee and write and write, and that's not something I can do anymore. I mean, I can't even sit at a desk for half an hour without feeling sick. Um, so I've been trying to do little workarounds. I've been experimenting with writing longhand while lying in bed. Right now I'm experimenting with writing like a paragraph at a time on my phone while lying in bed. Um, it's definitely um, something new and something that I've had to, having to figure out. I've written and published essays, as we've talked about, since, since um, having finished writing and editing The Border of Paradise. And so it's good for my self-esteem and my self sense of efficacy to know that I can write something and finish something, even with illness. Um, it's been nice to know that I've been reasonably prolific in the past couple of months, but uh, I still haven't really tackled the novel issue at this point yet, having having to really bear down and work on a second novel is still something that I'm facing. Yeah, but it sounds like you're itching to do one, though, so I, I hope that you'll figure that out in a way that works. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, it's interesting. I have said for a while that my second book was actually going to be an essay collection about schizophrenia, which it still might be. I have... I have about thirty to 40,000 words of one, but I, it's very different from writing fiction. I think there's something about writing fiction that makes me much more alert and much more aware of the world and much more attentive to the world. Mm. Yeah. How was it to have a character who was dealing with, with David, who was dealing with, he, he has schizophrenia, right? I never, yeah, never really I never fully said, defined, yeah. but it's, I mean, I used to be a psychotherapist in a previous life, so I was like, I'm feeling like that's what's going on, and knowing <laughs> your advocacy, I was like, I'm, I don't want to give him a label, but I was curious about how that was to explore his internal landscape. Yeah, so um, I definitely borrowed a lot from my own experience for David, but I very purposely did not give him a diagnosis in the book. Um, I think for a number of reasons, um, I think that the DSM makes things seem much more simple and clean than they really are. I have never been a psychotherapist, but I used to be a researcher in a mood and anxiety disorders clinic and also a brain imaging clinic. And so I did hundreds of hours of clinical interviews with people and talked to many, many people about their experiences. And I just realized while interviewing these people and listening to their stories and listening to them talk about their symptoms and their issues that many times I would end up having to disqualify someone from a 
an experiment or um, a study because they did not cleanly fit our definition of bipolar disorder or social anxiety or whatever it was we were studying at the time. And to me, it would really feel like, oh, this person really does meet criteria. Like, it's very clear that this person meets criteria. But so much of, I think, diagnosis is really messy. Um, like, thinking about, uh, you know, to meet for major depression, having to have, like, four out of seven symptoms for, like, two weeks or more most of the time every day, <laughs> um, stuff like that. Um, and, and just, like, oh, well, what if it's only, like, most of the day for, like, a week and a half or, you know, just things like that. I just, having yeah. worked, having worked um, in the mental health research field and then also having been through the kind of mental health machine I, and having been diagnosed with a lot of different things in my life, I think I've just, I really prefer in some ways being able to have that freedom of having the messiness and gray areas of writing about mental illness and fiction. It's much more clear-cut in my nonfiction, as as you know. I, I mostly write about schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. Right. Yeah, I think that was one of the strengths of it, honestly, because having worked with a lot of um, schizophrenic, I worked with a lot of dual diagnosis patients when I was in graduate school, and it was never like, oh, we're going to check off this list. It was yeah. <laughs> yeah, always, there were always other elements to it, and I think that was one of the strengths in the book is that it, it's one person's story, and this is an element of it, but they're not, it's not like this is a schizophrenic person. It's not, it doesn't eat up his whole identity. It's just something that he's facing. Um, yeah, and it's also something I've noticed in, in some other novels. I, I tend to get a little worried whenever I see a novel and on, on the back it just, it's described as, like, this is a novel about, I don't know, John, about a person with bipolar disorder, blah, blah, blah. And then I, I, if I see something like that, I tend to get the feeling that once I, if I ever start reading this book, it's going to start taking off things, like he's, John is going to have trouble sleeping a lot, and then he's going to, like, talk really fast, and, you know, uh, he'll and have he might want to walk cross-country, or... Yeah, exactly. Like He might start building a house with his bare hands. And... <laughs> exactly. Like, you start to feel like the person is more a collection of symptoms than a human being, and so that's kind of what I found pleasant about having... David based mostly in mid-century America. Like, he he gets to be called just neurotic most of the time. <laughs> um, you know, from when he's young and exhibiting these kind of symptoms of, I don't know, you could call it a couple of things, like, um, like body dysmorphia, or you could call it, like, different kinds of anxiety or OCD. But at the time, he's just called neurotic, and that's what he called right. himself. Yeah, it's like everyone's like, oh, the whole community is kind of like, we know there's something going on, but we don't really know how to address it. So we're just going to sort of stand back and, like, the community he grew up in, I thought was really sort of amazingly well drawn as to how they're all sort of like, we're going to back up slowly and smile, (laughs) but we're not going to do anything that's particularly helpful or supportive. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... Uh, 
think times have changed in some ways, but I think it's a natural and very human instinct to do that, to kind of back up slowly when you see something happen that's scary and that you find hard to understand. Yeah, I think so. I mean, all of it felt very human. And I think that was sort of what stuck with me is that this, this and again, not to sort of give everything away, but there is a construction of the circumstances, which are incredibly, you know, far from most people's direct lived experience. But there are things that you kind of see, like, oh, I might react that way, or, oh, I can understand how they might feel that way. It's a little bit like, I almost felt a little squeamish reading it. Um, I was like, oh, dear. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is a weird comparison, but I remember watching Dexter, which is a similar sort of, it's this character with a completely different makeup. But I remember yeah, yeah. like, oh, I kind of I kind of get it. Like, I kind of get why he thinks that way, even though I'm yeah. not in the same life as he is. And it's, I like, think a lot Dexter of people are the dark passenger. Yeah, it's sort of like, okay, I see how this could happen. And most people don't want to think that about themselves. They don't want to recognize I think we, we draw these little safe boxes around ourselves, like, oh, I would never do X, Y, and Z. And this book kind of forces you to reconsider, okay, what would I do in these, in these situations, and who might I become? Yeah. Certain reference points I have in my life now weren't there. Yeah, I really love how you describe it that way, because I think a, a common theme that I often think about with this book is how people really try to do what they think is best for the people they love and how that often ends up not the way you think it will. Um, right. I, just like you can really trace back almost everything terrible in this book to someone doing something for someone they love that they think is the right thing. Yeah. And yeah, and I think that's just a really common problem, or I don't even know if I'd call it a problem, a really common life situation for humans in general. We all are doing, I like to think that we're all doing the best we can, um, but the problem is that we're all doing the best we can with what we have, and so what we have is not, not the best thing, or not the greatest thing. That we're not always working with a full, sort of a fully healthy and grounded foundation to start with, so yeah. the best you can from that perspective. So how, is it, how has it been, like, having it out in the world? Like, how is it, it – it's doing really well. Like, NPR snatched it up, which is awesome. And how is, it, how is it having people you don't even know read it and then have opinions about it and bringing it back to you? Because as you said, it's like your baby, and you've had it to yourself for a long time. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, it's been really wonderful and surprising and fun. I think something I really love that's happening is people taking pictures of it with their food or with their babies um, and then posting them <laughs> on social media. Like, that's something that I wasn't expecting, but that I, it turns out I really love. Um, I purposely haven't really been reading, like, the reviews on Goodreads, um, but I have been reading uh. the and I haven't really been reading the Amazon reviews either, but I have been reading the critical reviews and um, the blog reviews. And, yeah, it's been really satisfying to see people really put thought into it and to, yeah, to see that people are 
enjoying the book, um, that people are getting it, like that they get what I was trying to do. I mean, once you write something and publish it and put it out into the world, that's kind of it. Like you've, you've given up all control basically of the story. But um, I feel like I feel like there's been a really great reception, and I, it's been so satisfying to see readers have the experience that I was hoping they would have. That's great. I think it's wonderful because, you know, you never know. Like, how are people going to respond to this? How are they going to get it? Are they not going to get it? Like, because you, you don't really get to say, wait a minute, what I meant was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, I think it's, I don't know, I encourage people to read it. I think it's, it's a really memorable book with really vivid characters, and you do get invested in them. I certainly did. Um, yeah, and it's just, I, I do keep thinking about it. I'm like, I wonder, you know, it does make you ponder things, and I, I keep wondering about, you know, what the ultimate, you know, what ultimately happens to them, like way down the line, you know, and all of those kinds of things. It's one of those that it sort of bleeds outside of the, the confines of the time that you spend with them. At least wow, for me, it has. That's great. I mean, that's, that's like the dream, right? I mean, it's <laughs> for me. Um, but thank you. Yeah, that's really, really gratifying to hear. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah, it was, it was, I felt very fortunate to read it, um, read it early, early in the game. <laughs> so I'm curious, um, so you're thinking about starting another novel, and I know, I want to offer to people the fact that I know you have a course um, on your site, which I want to mention. Oh, thank you. It's really great. Yeah. So can you tell us about that? Yeah. So the course is called Rawness of Remembering, Restorative Journaling Through Difficult Times, and it is based on the years of journaling I've done um, through tough times things ranging from rape um, to uh, living with mental illness and dealing with chronic illness and things like that. And I really found journaling to be uh, a great tool for me. And the reason I created this course, which is a self-paced course, so you you register and then you get access to the website, um, which has all the course materials on it, and you get access to that indefinitely. Um, but the reason I created it was that I really felt like I could try to teach a certain kind of journaling that would be different from kind of just like spewing out your thoughts, which has its own value, but I really wanted to teach this kind of toolbox of, of certain, certain things that I had developed and was using in my own journaling and still do use in my own journaling. And so I actually just wrapped up a live version of the course. Mm. So it, um, it was uh, also online, but there was uh, a Facebook group uh, of, of people taking the class, and I would post a new um I post a new thing to the Facebook group every day, and there's kind of like community building and people asking questions and talking amongst themselves, and it was really lovely. So, yeah, uh, that is available all the time. Thank you. Yeah, it's available all the time. Um, I might teach another live version later this year, but right now it's available as a self-paced thing. 
Got it. That's nice that you do both. And the other one I just want to put out there for anybody is the encouragement notes, which I totally love. Okay. Oh. <laughs> it's so sweet. It's like, because you did it originally as a, a live thing, right? Because you did yeah. it at a certain point, and then yeah. people asked to repeat it. So it's an yeah. email subscription of just basically encouraging thoughts for if you're feeling stuck. I actually recommended it to a friend of mine, and we both... <laughs> It. And I have your little wallpaper on my phone that says, keep going, you're doing great. Which is oh, really great. great. <laughs> um, and oh, I love great. seeing that on my phone. So um, I definitely recommend people. It's a nice way to, like, check out some of Esme's work just for yeah. from the, the sort of course side of it because it's a free series. But they're so, they're so sweet and really thoughtful and good, particularly anyone who's dealt with chronic illness. Um, if you're dealing with anything like that. I had years of horrifying tonsillitis that, like, kept me in bed for a month at a time periodically and um, finally had surgery, so that was great. But um, but I say all of your thoughts about, like, being stuck in a bed, not knowing what to do about it, are spot on and so helpful. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I yeah, the encouragement notes are free. They're, you know, feel free to sign up for them. Um, I wrote them when I was having a tough time, so often what I do is, get up in the morning and think, okay, what would I like to hear today? And then I would write cool. the encouragement notes for that day. Um, but, yeah, uh, it's a nice, uh, in my opinion, a nice little series of notes, and you get them every day when you sign up in your inbox. Yeah. So you can do much more than you can read the book, which is great. And then <laughs> you've got ebooks in your shop, and you've got encouragement notes, and when the light gets in and all of these things you can do. So it's really, it's a really nice full package from a writer. You don't normally get that access to them um, outside of just reading their work. So yeah, that's a treat that you can, you can offer that as well. Thank you. Um, so thank you so much for taking this time with us. It's really amazing to hear, you know, your journey, particularly anyone who's struggling at any part, if you're trying to publish a book, um, I feel like a lot of people have a hard time getting an agent, but even if you have an agent, keep going. And oh, no, everyone has me. Yeah, keep, keep going. Your book, and great. if they say, <laughs> yeah, keep going. You're doing great. Put that wallpaper on your phone. It is a, it's a good one. Um, yeah, because who knows what'll happen? And it worked out. And NPR may come knocking for your book, even if your agent says maybe we need to take a break. Yeah, um, you really don't know the end of the story until the end of the story. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, and so hopefully we'll have you on again to talk about your next book. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely talking to you, and um, take care. Yeah, you too. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. To learn more and get show notes for this episode, please visit carolinedonahue.com slash podcast. And to stay up to date and learn about future episodes, please sign up for our newsletter footnotes. We look forward to seeing you again on a future episode. Thanks again and happy reading.